Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Let's continue our worship in prayer. Father, it it is so true that we, in in the busyness of life, in the challenges of life, in the things that take our time and our attention and distract us in all sorts of ways. It's, it's so true that we can lose sight of the cross, and not just as an event, but as it teaches us, as it compels us with what really the cost of love is, what love is really all about. We would love those who love us. We would greet those who are cordial to us. We would give ourselves for those that we, for whatever reason, feel are worthy of that sacrifice. But just as Paul came to understand really the love of the Savior, the love of the God of Israel, He came to be constrained and compelled, controlled by that love. And he was a man who eagerly, though sorrowfully and painfully, but who eagerly, willingly gave himself to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of the faith of others, a man who was willing to suffer much, as he said to the Corinthians, to always bear about in his own life, in the exercise of his daily life, to bear about the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus would not only be perfected in him, but that it would be manifest and produced and perfected in others. He saw himself as dying in order that others would live. And Father, it is a very poignant reminder to us of what it is really to be called by Christ's name, what it is to be sharers in his life, what it is to bear his fragrance in the world what it is to know him and be like him, what it is to be a faithful people. And I pray, Father, that that challenge to us that we have already received this morning would be a foundation for our consideration of this incident, this episode that the Hebrews writer brought to his readers and that in your good providence comes to us today. Bring us low 
in the right sort of humiliation, that we would be exalted, made to be as hinds feet on high places, rejoicing, exalting in the triumphal love of our God. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we continue on in our consideration of Hebrews 11 and the writer rehearsing for his Jewish readers this great legacy of faith that had characterized uh, God's people throughout throughout the centuries, uh, all the way up to the time of the Messiah, and, and really by way of the writer encouraging his readers that the things that they were suffering, the things that they were enduring, the great trial of their faith was nothing new. That from the beginning, God's people had been marked out by the fact that they walked with him in faith in the face of great difficulty and challenge. The writer moves us very quickly um, from the time of the deliverance associated with the captivity in Egypt to the time when Israel is poised to enter the land. He, He skips over 40 years, but I'd like to go back and read with us our particular Uh, example that he gives us today is verse 30, but I'd like to go back just uh, to verse 23 to again kind of bring us into this context. We could go back all the way to the beginning of the chapter, but I'd like to at least go back to the point of Moses. He says in, in Hebrews 11 verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a distinctive child. There was a distinction about him. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he, Moses, left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He endured rather as seeing him who is unseen. And by faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. And by faith, they, the sons of Israel, passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. So by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Again, the writer jumps from the exodus, from the deliverance through the Red Sea, 40 years to the time where Israel is now on the plains of Moab and preparing to enter the land that God had promised to them. And really, verse 31 goes into the same context as he brings in the, the person of Rahab and, and her as an example of faith. But I want to deal with these two separately just because there's so much in them. But they do refer to that same episode, that same time when Israel makes its entrance into the land and begins this process of obtaining its inheritance. One of the things that I think uh, is interesting about this at the outset is that the people who are the, the subject of the 
Exodus, the Passover, the deliverance, the, the Red Sea episode, are not the same people who are the subject of this Jericho episode, at least not entirely. We know if we follow the account that the sons of Israel who came out of Egypt, among that adult generation, there were only two of them who entered the land of Canaan, Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses himself died outside of the land of Canaan. He was not permitted to enter the land. And the turning point happened very quickly after the Israelites departed from Canaan. They spent, uh, uh, from Sinai, they spent roughly a year at Sinai. As God ratified this covenant, they began to develop the materials for the priesthood, the ordaining of the priest, the constructing of the sanctuary. All of that's recorded in the book of Exodus. But it's in Numbers, I think, chapter 10, that you see them finally in the second year now departing from Mount Sinai and beginning their journey towards the inheritance of Canaan. But immediately, episodes of rebellion take place. You have the grumbling about the food that they have, and you have the the complaining uh, of uh, Miriam and Aaron about Moses usurping all the authority. Um, and you have then the, the incident, the main issue in the changing out of the people of Moses dispatching 12 spies to spy out the land. Joshua and Caleb being two of those men. And when they come back, they say, We've spied out the land, and it is indeed a good land. It is a fruitful land. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. And they bring back this, on on poles, this big cluster of grapes to show the, the fruitfulness of the land. But they also say it's a fortified place with fortified cities, walled cities, powerful people. It's a terrifying place. And that report of those 10 other spies, that fearfulness that they convey to the people of Israel provokes fear in them. And they begin to wring their hands and say, oh, why why didn't we die in Egypt? Why don't we die here? Why did God bring us out just to have us go into a land and get slaughtered, us and our children after us? And God says, I've had it with you. This has been nothing but grumbling since you left Egypt. And so now, 40 days of testing in this 40 days of spying out the land will become 40 years. These 40 years will be appointed for all of the adult generation above the age of 20 to perish. All these who have disbelieved and grumbled. And the children that you say will become a prey to the people of Canaan, they will go in and they will take the land. And so 40 years have passed of unfaithfulness in which that adult generation that came out of Egypt has died. And that's why I say that the nation that is now poised to take Jericho is a different nation than left Egypt. And they're not altogether faithful either. But Israel, over this 40-year period, has been characterized by being a faithless people. And I think that could well be why the writer jumps instantly from the Red Sea 
to the episode at Jericho and says nothing and deals with nothing in terms of faithful examples throughout that 40 years. Forty years of purging were necessary to prepare the covenant household to obtain the inheritance that God had promised. And the account of that process of obtaining the inheritance is in the book of Joshua. Deuteronomy is kind of a static book in the sense that you have Israel on the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River ready to cross over into the land. Deuteronomos, second law, second giving of the law is the Greek uh, um, title for that particular book of Deuteronomy. But it's Moses rehearsing with the sons of Israel all that God has done in bringing them to that point the good and the bad. And even setting in front of them the promise of blessing for faithfulness to the covenant, but warning them about unfaithfulness and the judgments that will come upon them, and ultimately a promise of covenant renewal that will come in the future. But also, as we saw, the Song of Moses, which is a song that promises that Israel's to learn and sing to itself, which is the promise that unfaithfulness is coming and judgment and desolation are coming. But again, it will not be the last word. Yahweh will indeed renew the covenant. So the book of Joshua then, moving out of Deuteronomy, records the process. Moses has died. The mantle's passed to Joshua. Joshua records this process of Israel taking the land of Canaan. And so this Jericho episode is also uh, taken from, and we, we see that story told in the book of Joshua. If you turn back there, you see, interestingly, two things by way of preparation. The actual incident that the writer refers to is in chapter 6. But if you go back to Chapter 5, I'd like to read this with you. You see two preparatory acts. Now, just again to set the historical context, Israel has already passed through the Jordan. It's the springtime. The, The river's running high and fast. And God does another parting of the waters, right? He parts the river. He has the priest go down with the ark and the water of the Jordan stops and the people pass across. And they pull 12 stones out of the riverbed that they make as a kind of of tribute, a memorial in the land at Gilgal as a tribute that God has brought us through. He's again, he has now established us in the land. So they've come across there at Gilgal, but now as they're in the land and the manna is stopping because they are now in the land, there are two preparatory things that God does before the actual episode of Jericho. Chapter 5 of Joshua, verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel till they had crossed. Their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua did so, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war died in the wilderness along the way, which we just talked about. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is all the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of Yahweh, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which he had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then down to verse 8. Now it came about when they had finished circumcising all the nation that they remained in their places in the camp at Gilgal till they were healed. And then Yahweh said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. This reproach is finally taken from you. Forty years later, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. And while they camped at Gilgal, the sons of Israel observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten of the produce of the land. That provision that had carried them through the wilderness now had ceased. But the point is that there were these two preparatory acts before they actually began to take the land. And these acts show that the conquest of Canaan was a covenantal phenomenon, not a political one. It was a reminder even to the sons of Israel that this was God being faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then to them as well. He had promised Abraham, I will give your descendants after you the land of Egypt for an inher- or the land of Canaan for an inheritance. It's going to come after a period of time for the sin of the Amorite is not yet fully filled up, right? Genesis 15. But by the circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant, it was sign of the sign of covenant membership for the sons of Israel, right? Abraham's household, including the servants in his household, all of them were circumcised. Circumcision was the sign of covenant identity. All of the nation must be circumcised. And the Passover, as we saw, was the great birthright of the people of Israel, Their calendar was ordered around it. It was the beginning of their days. As I said, it was like a new birth. It was a birth from death into life for the household of Israel. And now we have a bookend of another Passover. That period of testing in the wilderness was bookended by a Passover on each end. That which had given birth to the nation unto the inheritance, looking to the inheritance, now is heralding their reception of that inheritance. They celebrate again the Passover as God's people, the delivered ones, the covenant son of Israel, the people of Abraham. 
it reminded them that what was about to take place was not political conquest. It wasn't building an empire. It wasn't taking possession of land. It wasn't even that they would have a place to live. It was Yahweh's covenant faithfulness. And that's very important as we consider the Jericho episode and the people's faith with respect to it. This is all about the fact that their covenant God is faithful. And they must themselves be faithful. Circumcision was, in a way, their own re-owning of their covenant identity, their covenant calling. And Passover was the affirming of, again, God's commitment to them and the covenant promises that he had made. So I want to treat this, this as I have done kind of to this point, I want to look at, at this statement about by faith the walls of Jericho came down after seven days. I want to begin by looking at the historical episode itself, and, and first and foremost by looking at this place, Jericho. It's actually one of the oldest settlements that we know of. Some have find uh, tracing of it back 10,000 years before the time of Christ. It's one of the oldest settlements. Now, it was rebuilt many times over those periods. But it was a settlement that had been around forever. And at the time that this is happening in the late Bronze Age period, it was a major fortified city in the land of Canaan. Jericho is just northwest of the Dead Sea. If you know, again, the Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. I think it's, it's around probably 70 miles or something. I don't know for sure. But from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. And Jericho is just north and west of the Dead Sea, about five miles west of the Jordan River. So when Israel crosses over the Jordan River and they camp at Gilgal, Gilgal is on the plains of Jericho. It's just east of the city, the city of Jericho. Jericho most likely was a city-state. Canaan at that time, it, it wasn't one big you know, uh, kingdom or empire. It consisted of dozens of city-states associated with the seven uh, Canaanite nations or tribes that you hear mentioned, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Gergesites, the Jebusites, you know, all of these different tribes that the scripture mentions. But it it was a bunch of little city-states, and and Jericho was probably one of those because it had its own king and its own military force on site. But it was also a walled city, which wasn't uncommon at that time, but for a city to be walled, it had to be a city of some uh, significance. Villages and towns were not generally walled. Well, Jericho was on a major trade route that ran from east to west. And so lots of goods and commerce passed through it. It was a prosperous city. It was a wealthy city. 
You see that in even God's instruction that when they take the city, they're to gather all the precious metals, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and gather it up to go into the treasury of his sanctuary. But it was a mercantile city. It had a lot of commerce going through it. There were a lot of reasons that it needed to be defended. Goods and money that had passed through it and that were a part of, of, of its, own, uh, uh, its, its own wealth. Um, it seems, and, and uh, investigations that have been done, archaeological digs, seem to indicate that the wall around the city was actually a double wall. You had, a, like, you had a rock foundation with a mud wall, and then you had an inclined slope, and then you had another mud wall, and then the city inside. And there were residences and other dwellings and shops and that sort of thing that were between the two walls. And that's indicated even by what's said about Rahab, and we'll deal with that more next week. But, but in the Joshua account, it says that her house was set, it was in the wall up against the wall. That's kind of the way the Hebrew reads. And you see that there's a window that she can let the, the when the, the uh, Israelite spies come to her, they can be let down th- through the window over the wall. Her residence would have sat in between the two walls up against the outer wall. The outer wall of her residence was the outer wall of the city of Jericho. So the window going out would have taken you down the embankment. But that's how it was fortified. You had a double wall on an incline. It was a massively fortified city. And that's important even as we consider the the situation with the wall. It was also built on a hill which made it a very defensible position. Even to this day, but certainly in the ancient world, you wanted to have the strategic position of high ground. You didn't want to be down low. You wanted to be up high if you were going to engage an enemy. And Jericho was on a hill. It was likely one of the cities that the 12 spies had seen when Moses sent them out. Because they came back and they said, the people are great and strong, and their cities are fortified. And I won't go back and read that account in Numbers. You can read it in Numbers 13. But when they describe where they went and what they saw, they're describing, among other places, the area where Jericho was located. It was a significant enough city that they probably would have seen it. So here's this city... And this is the place that God directs the Israelites to first. And you say, well, it's just because that's where they happened to cross the Jordan River. And it was, very, it was in close proximity to the Jordan, so that's just where they ended up, was at Jericho. But I think there was an intentionality of that. God could have had them cross anywhere north of there, and they would have encountered other people, other settlements, other cities first. He had them confront Jericho first because it posed one of the greatest challenges to their possession of the land. It was a massive test of faith. 
This was a fortified city whose fortifications had been developed for a long time to hold off any kind of assaults, any kind of attacks. There was a lot to be protected there, and they had developed very good defenses for protecting it. And God leads Israel to have to come up against that city. A great test of faith for Israel in believing God for the inheritance, this test of faith was actually a supreme test. He was forcing them to confront a fortified, heavily militarized city in Canaan and somehow believing that they would be able to pass through those impregnable walls and take the city. An impossible thing from a human standpoint. So there's some background uh, to the city and to the circumstance in which they find themselves. Well, how did God bring this about? And again, the Hebrews writer doesn't tell us because his readers all know the story. And I think many of us know the story as well. But the story, uh, the way in which this took place, you can read in in, uh, Joshua chapter 6. It says, now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. They're camped just east of the city. The people of Jericho know that the Israelites are there, and they're no insignificant uh, population of people. There's a vast multitude in the encampment of Israel. And the people of Jericho know they're there, and they've shut the walls tightly, and, uh, or the gates of the city. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, behold, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and its valiant warriors. And you shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people will shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. It, literally, it's the idea of falling down uh, underneath itself. And the people will go up, every man straight ahead. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns, the shofar, before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets. The rear guard came after them in the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, you shall not even let your voice be heard. Not even a word shall proceed out of your mouth until the day that I tell you, Shout, then you shall shout. And so he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came back to the camp and spent the night in the camp. And then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And once again, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets 
of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually blowing the trumpets and the armed men went before them and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they were continuing to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city and they did so for six days. So here's the scene. You've got the fighting men of Israel going out from the camp of Gilgal, going across the plain. It's not very far. To the, to the foot of the wall of Jericho. It's up on a hill, a wall all the way around it. Nobody knows exactly how big the city was, but probably somewhere about a mile around it. And walking as they were, uh, it probably would have taken somewhere around, you know, close to an hour, maybe a little less than an hour, walking slowly in procession to go around the city. But they go and they have the fighting men First, then they have the priests with the ark on the poles in between, and then they have a rear guard. So the centerpiece of this procession is the ark of the covenant with priests blowing the shofar the whole time they're doing it, but the people perfectly silent. And they're putting on this show for the people of Jericho. All the people in the city here is these ram's horn trumpets blowing, 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 blowing. But it's going to attract people to the wall. It's going to attract, obviously, the soldiers. They're going to be watching, seeing what's going on. And many have said, and I think there's some warrant in this, that this was an act, God intended this to be an act of psychological warfare. We already read, and, there's, and you see it also as well in, in, in the account with Rahab, that the news of these Israelites had come to Jericho. They knew, the word had spread of this amazing thing that the Israelites had come out of Egypt and somehow their God had parted the waters of the sea and brought them through. They had effectively defeated the power of Egypt, which was the primary power at that time. Egypt had a lot of control even in Canaan at that time. And they had conquered various kings, moving through, coming across, until they came to the Jordan River. And the news of all of this had spread. The people of Jericho knew what had happened with these Israelites, and now they see them camping just outside the city. And you see this silent procession with just the blasting of these ram's horn trumpets, and the people walk around the city, and then they turn and they go back. And that happens a second day, and it happens a third day. And as I say, many people say this was... God psyching out the people of Jericho, increasing their fear. And I think there was some sense in that, but the emphasis of the account and the emphasis of certainly the Hebrews writer was the faith of Israel in that episode. And I think that you can say in the first instance, their faith was that somehow, I mean, they're forced to go and walk around this city for six days, looking up at these massive walls and thinking, how in the world is this going to happen? God had told them that they would take the city, that the walls would come down. 
And maybe they thought that an earthquake would be the way that would happen. There are a lot of uh, scholars and archaeologists who believe that's, that's how God did this, a massive earthquake. And that is a fault zone in there. It has been subject to earthquakes. Just as God parted the sea, using a natural phenomenon, he may have done the same thing with a massive earthquake. But it would be a massive earthquake to bring down those walls. But Israel had to do that believing that God was going to give them the city. What was humanly impossible. He would have to arise and do some sort of mighty work as he had done at the Red Sea. But I think another dimension of their faith was the humiliation of the whole thing. Because the way that they presented themselves, yes, the people of Jericho, the people of Canaan had heard about this strange people, these Hebrews, and somehow this God who was doing all of these amazing things. But, but here is Israel coming out of the wilderness. They're wearing the same clothes. They're wearing the same shoes. They're not heavily weaponized. They're a ragtag bunch of people. Yeah, okay, the fighting men outnumbered the military force inside of Jericho. But what were they? They weren't well-equipped. They weren't well-trained. They're wearing a bunch of raggedy old clothes, marching around the city, carrying some weird golden box with a bunch of weirdly dressed priests blowing trumpets, not making a sound and walking away. And you can imagine, I mean, as much as they would have been fearful, the people of Jericho also looked down at these people and said, what do we have to be afraid of them about? What, what can they do to us? Jericho was heavily fortified. It had withstood all kinds of assaults of all types for a long, long time. They had a spring in the city. They, they had water. They had food supplies. They had food stores. They could withstand any siege. And you can imagine that they'd be on the walls jeering and taunting these weird people walking around the city. And every day, the Israelite fighting men had to get up, go back, walk back to the city, walk around the city, not say a word, and then go back to their camp. They had to present themselves in a way that really would have made them look foolish. That this would look like a comic, a fool's errand, thinking that these people can take the city. God required them to be humiliated day after day after day. And believe that in the end, God would give them the city. He would give them the city. But they persisted day after day. I think this is where the issue of faith in that humiliation comes in. Every day as they walked this, they were walking it with the ark of the Lord. And they understood that the ark represented God's presence. He didn't just send them out to be humiliated and taunted and jeered at. He himself was subjecting himself to the same taunts and the same jeering. He was with them. He went out with them. Just as he led them through the wilderness, just as he brought them through the sea, he was with them. This was a covenantal work. God was the God of Israel, and he would be faithful. He would 
endure what they endured, and he would triumph. The God who had brought them to that part point, the God who had promised, the God who was with them in their humiliation would triumph. And I think that was the faith that carried them through day by day. Well, on the seventh day, God said, you're to go back and walk around the city seven times. Now, if you think about it, this is a brutally hot desert area. They're walking from Gilgal. They go to the city. Now they've got to walk around it seven times. So it could be six or seven hours out in the heat walking around this city. And now, even if God does bring down the walls, they've got to go in and they've got to fight a rested army when they're worn out. They've been walking in the heat all day. But God says, walk around it seven times on the seventh time when the priests blow that loud blast at the end, give a shout and the walls will come down and go up into the city and take the city. And that's exactly what happened. The wall fell, they went in and they slew everyone in the city. All the men, all the women, all the children, all the animals. And, and they burned the city to the ground. The only thing they brought out of it were the precious metals that God said were to go into his treasury. The bronze, the gold, the silver. And after Jericho's destruction, Joshua made the people of Israel take an oath to never rebuild it. It, was, it had been devoted to the Lord, and if anyone rebuilt it, it would come at the cost of their own household. Their children, God said, you rebuild it, I'll take the lives of your children. And you can read the account for yourself. So that was the end then of Jericho. And I want to conclude just by drawing out a couple of things um, that, that are often the things that come to the forefront with respect to this account. The first has nothing to do with the people's faith per se and what the Hebrews writer is getting at, but it's this whole idea of God's judgment being brought against Jericho. This is the beginning of the taking of Canaan, and for a lot of people, this is a huge ethical quandary. How does the God who is embodied and fully revealed in Jesus of Nazareth, how do we equate that God with this God who says everything in the city that takes breath is to be killed? The babies, the animals, the old people, the young people, the women, not just the fighting men, everything. Everything is to die. Now, in many instances, as, as Israel went through the land, they took people, they took children, they took women, they took animals as spoil. But in this instance, everything was to be put to death. And I guess the first thing that I would say about that is that God's goal in this, the, the issue in this was not the death of human beings as such, but the destruction of all of the idolatrous ideas and practices that characterized this city and the land of Canaan. 
In other words, as I said at the outset, the whole thing of of taking the land of Canaan was a covenantal transaction, not a political one. It, It wasn't, you know, nations fighting each other for land or whatever. It wasn't that. The land needed to be purged of its spiritual uncleanness in order for it to be Yahweh's dwelling place where he would dwell with his covenant children. Remember again, even in the Song of Moses, when they came out of Egypt, it was Yahweh has brought us out to bring us to his holy mountain, to his sanctuary, that we would dwell with him. Canaan, by God's decree, was to be his sanctuary, his holy dwelling place, and for it to be fitted for his dwelling there with his children, that that land needed to be purged. You see this when you look at in Deuteronomy. I mean, you see it all over the place. But in Deuteronomy 7, God says, or, or Moses says to the sons of Israel, this is before they've entered the land. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it and shall clear away many nations before you, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when Yahweh your God shall deliver them before you, you shall defeat them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their asherim, burn their graven images with fire. Destroy everything that pertains to their culture and their religious practice. For you are a consecrated people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This, this principle lies behind this idea of the ban. And I, some some Bible versions will even use that expression. This is under the ban, if you've ever seen that. But the idea of under the ban means something that God has set apart to be destroyed, set apart for destruction. It's the negative side of the concept of consecration or holiness. We tend to think of holiness in behavioral terms, but it's first and foremost a status idea. It speaks to that which is distinct or set apart. Even God's holiness doesn't so much speak to his moral character as to his separateness, his distinctiveness. And holiness is this idea of consecration, something that is devoted to the Lord. And it has both a negative side and a positive side. The priests were holy to the Lord. The high priest had the the gold placard on his turban that said, holy to the Lord. And the priests and the Levites didn't have a land inheritance because they were holy to the Lord. They belonged to the Lord. And the utensils and all of the things that made up the sanctuary were holy to the Lord. 
So even a dirty bronze shovel that cleaned out ashes, you couldn't look at it or touch it because it was holy to the Lord. It was utterly set apart to him. It could have no common use, no common engagement. And this idea of under the ban speaks of the negative side of that idea of consecration, that which is devoted by the Lord to be destroyed. Devoted for destruction. It's the negative side of this idea of being devoted to the Lord. Just one place where you see these ideas kind of woven together in Leviticus. Part of, again, the Levitical prescription. This is Leviticus 27, verse 28. Anything which a man sets apart to the Lord. There's the idea of consecration. Anything which a man would set apart to the Lord out of all that he has, of of man or animal or the fields of his own property, it shall not be sold or redeemed. It belongs to the Lord. It can't be sold. It can't be redeemed out. You can't buy it back. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. No one who may have been set apart among men shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Now, there's many other passages that deal with that idea, but there you see how the idea of consecration, holiness, under the ban, set apart for destruction functions. So what's the point? God had consecrated Canaan to himself as his holy sanctuary. That meant that everything inside of it was set apart to that purpose. Everything inside of it was set apart to that purpose. It was holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord in the sense that Canaan was his dwelling place. Therefore, anything that defiled, contradicted, or opposed that ordination, that consecration, had to be eliminated. It could no longer have any common use. It belonged to the Lord. Everything had to serve that purpose of being his dwelling place. Anything that opposed or contradicted it or defiled that had to be eliminated. And that applied to the Canaanite people. It also applied to the Israelites to the extent that they were contributors to that defilement and that contradiction. You see that again in the scriptures, God constant warning. If you follow after these people, you will be under the ban, just like they're under the ban. It wasn't about, I like the Israelites, I don't like the Canaanites. These are better people, these are worse people. It had to do with the principle of what God had ordained. And that elimination, that destruction, as the scripture speaks of it, it called for death wherever there was armed conflict. But more often, that destruction involved the Canaanites being driven from the land. Every person who lived in Canaan wasn't slaughtered in this taking of the land. In fact, even by the time Joshua died, there were still many Canaanites living in the land, some of whom were serving the Israelites, some of whom had not been conquered. The Jebusite stronghold of Jerusalem wouldn't be conquered until David came along, right? Centuries later. Exodus 23, verse 27 
God says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come in the land, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. They will flee. I will send hornets ahead of you that they may drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate. You wouldn't be able to take possession and keep the fruitfulness of the land in place if you took it too quickly. This has to be staged in order for it to not just you lose control of it. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, the Mediterranean in the south, and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. God would purge the land, but that didn't mean the death of every single person in the land. But Jericho was one of the most glorious examples of Canaanite culture and power and significance. And so it was fitting that it would be the first fruits of the consecration of Canaan. It would be the first fruits of this offering to the Lord, the first and the best of Canaan's devotion to the Lord. Jericho was the first of that offering, and it testified both to Israel and to the Canaanite peoples that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was going to bring in the rest of the harvest. That's what first fruits was all about, right? It was the promise of the fullness of the harvest to come. Paul speaks of Christ in that way in in 1 Corinthians 15. He's the first fruits. And the fullness of the harvest comes in the resurrection of the last day. So Jericho had a special significance. And I know that still doesn't answer the question of, yeah, but why innocent babies? But in terms of the general principles of how we think about these things, that's what I would like to say about that. And I think that's how the text would like us to think about what transpired at Jericho. Because it wasn't that way, that absolute death of everything that lived was not the way in which the whole conquest of Canaan took place. But God saw fit that it would be that way there at that time. And then lastly, I want to close just by looking a little bit more closely at this idea of Israel's faith with respect to the falling of the wall. The writer says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. And particularly in our time, in our culture, it's very easy to read a kind of causal role in that faith. You know, if you believe God enough, then you can make this happen, right? Believe God for this and get whatever you believe with all your heart, the Lord will do it. These kinds of ideas that's very common for us to have. If I just believe it, God will do it. And we say, well, they they believed this and it was their faith somehow that played a causal role in the wall coming down. But Israel's faith and faithfulness, which really stood on Joshua's faith, just as it had stood on Moses' faith before them, but the faith of the people with respect to the city of Jericho and the conquest of it, 
it represented their yieldedness to God. If you will, God triumphed in their own faith. He triumphed in their helplessness. There was absolutely nothing they could see in themselves or what they were doing or what they could accomplish that would bring this about. Their faith in this process of the walls coming down was them submitting themselves to a circumstance of difficulty and humiliation, but believing that God would triumph. It was triumph in their helplessness. And really, this was Israel's covenant calling all along the way. Israel was Yisrael. God triumphs because, or Israel triumphs because God triumphs in them. When did Jacob become Yisrael? And Mahanaim, right? The two camps when Esau was coming to meet him, Genesis 32. And he wrestles with God. And the angel of God, who's called God, touches his hip and his hip's out of socket. And he continues to wrestle and he triumphs. And he says, you are no longer Jacob, you are Yisrael. Because you have striven with God and prevailed. How does somebody with their hip out of joint win a wrestling match? If you've ever had your hip out of joint, you don't wrestle. That's the point. You have prevailed because God has caused you to prevail. That was Israel's identity. That was its life with God. It would be a kingdom of priests, a mighty people, because Yahweh would go ahead of them, because Yahweh would cause them to prevail. And so it is, even as they take the land. At the very outset, God makes them understand, this is me, not you. Their faith had nothing to do with making the walls fall down. Their faith was simply them manifesting. This was an enacted faith by which they manifest their ownership of their God as faithful. I've said it all through this section of Hebrews 11. Faith isn't believing that God will do what I want him to do or that a hopeful outcome may come to pass. Faith is believing what God has said he is doing and he's going to do and believing that he will do that. Faith is tied to the God who has spoken and promised, not our expectations, not our desires, not our wishes, not our hopes. It's specifically tied to a knowledge of God who has spoken and who has promised. It's believing the God who is. And so their faith, which was exercised in helplessness and humiliation, really was the way in which they were able to bring God's ordained future into the present and perceive what their senses could not. Isn't this Hebrews 11.1? Look back at what Hebrews 11.1 1 says. What is faith? It is the hope. It is the substance of things hoped for, right? 
It is the substantiation of things not seen. Faith brings the future into the present and allows us to see what our senses won't allow us to see. And so here's my, my closing question. How do we, and each of us needs to answer this question, how do we believe that faith triumphs? What does it look like for our faith to triumph? I think most often it looks like an outcome that we expect to find. It looks like deliverance from trouble. What does it look like for our faith to triumph? I had no idea what Tim was going to talk about today, but it's very appropriate. The last thing anything anybody thought about Jesus of Nazareth was that he was a man whose faith in the God of Israel was triumphing. The great psychological portrait of him in Isaiah is a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. Stricken of God, smitten by him. Didn't go very well for him. Didn't look very hopeful for him. Paul dealt with this with the Corinthians. He said, you excel in gifts, you excel in knowledge, you excel in all these things, and yet you don't understand what this is about. Even the way they viewed him was through a skewed lens. And he says, with respect to the way he's speaking to them, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos these things for your sake, that you might learn through us and by considering us not to exceed what is written, that you might not become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Who is it that regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Oh, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You've already become kings without us. Well, I would indeed that you would have become kings so that we might also reign with you. Because God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you are so prudent. We are weak. Oh, but you are strong. You are distinguished, and we are without any honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. And when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. There was the triumph of Paul's faith. What does the triumph of faith look like? And secondly, what does it look like for God to be faithful to you, to me? What does it look like for God to be faithful? Does it look like him making our lives look the way we want? Does it look like ending our suffering? Does it look like whatever, fill in the blank? What does it look like for God to be faithful? Can it look like what Paul's talking about here? 
can it look like? Weakness, humiliation, abuse, mistreatment, pain, death. The uniquely, infinitely beloved of the Father and the faithfulness of the Father to the Son did not look like that at all to anybody observing it. Nobody in Israel was going to say, see, we know that the Father is faithful and loves this man because look at all that he's suffering. And people could look at Paul and they could say, you know, this guy's, he talks tough, but he's nothing. Where's the glory in Paul? And Paul can say of himself, you know, God did great things through me, but even so, in his mercy to keep me from being puffed up, he gave me a thorn to the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to perplex me, to afflict me, to distract me, to distort me in my own thinking. And Paul said, he prayed and he said, God, remove this from me. I can be more faithful. I can be more productive. I can carry out my calling more effectively if you will take away these things that afflict me and press in my mind. And if you want to see how that thorn worked, read the beginning of 2 Corinthians. The pain, the fear, the doubts, the suffering, the anxiousness, the threat of death that Paul dealt with day by day by day. And he says, God, take it away from me. And God said, no. Powers perfected in weakness. And Paul said, now I get it. Now I get it. Now I will exult in my persecutions, my weakness, my suffering, my afflictions, for Christ's sake. That the power of Christ might rest on me. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What does it look like to triumph in faith. What does it look like for God to be faithful? It's a question we all have to ask. It's a question we all have to answer. And even if we don't consciously answer it, we are answering it all the time by the way we think about our lives and our circumstances and how God stands in relation to them. God, how could you? How would you? Why would you? And all of the things, and this is as true of me as of all of you, All of these things that we wrestle with, fear, doubt, anxiousness, resentment, discouragement, disappointment, all of those things are the result of faithlessness. They're all expressions of faithlessness. They are the result of us having expectations of what faith should do for us and what it looks like for God to be faithful. We want to write him into our narrative instead of being written into his. God required of Israel a great work of faith in entering the land, and it wasn't going to be easy for them. We live in a time and a culture, and I love my ease as much as any of us, but we live in a time in which we are, life is so easy. And we think that that's what it looks like for God to be good. 
God is good because he will fulfill all of his purposes in the Messiah. And he is good because he has grafted us into those purposes and caused us to attain to that glory that is in the face of Christ himself. And we prevail in him, though we may not prevail in this life in the sense that we love our lives unto death. Can we be people of faith? Can we believe that our God is faithful? Father, this is a challenge for each one of us. I know the folks in this congregation, and I know the suffering that each one is, is enduring in all sorts of different ways, and the, and the insecurities and the doubts and the fears and the family issues and the work issues and the financial issues and the health issues. And I don't diminish any of that. But again, just as it was with Paul, these are the occasions for growth. These are the occasions for the nurturing of our faith. If Jesus learned what it was to be a son through the things that he suffered, how much more is that true of us? We don't need to sail through life on a silk pillow. We need to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. And each one's life is different. Each one's needs are different. Your faithfulness and your goodness and the precision of your work in each one's life is different. But I pray, Father, that we would have the same mind and the same heart, that we would know what it means that our God is faithful. And that as Job said, even if you were to slay us, yet would we trust you? Can we trust you in all things? Can we keep our eyes set on the enthroned and exalted Messiah and the promise of our God that he will sum up everything in the creation in him? Can we believe you for the lives that we have? Can we believe you in suffering? Can we believe you in pain? Can we believe you even in death? Can we be truly Christian people in this world? Father, I pray that you would help us in these things. Give us joy, joy that transcends the pain, peace that surpasses all understanding, and trusting that in all things that you will meet our needs according to your riches in Christ Jesus. Maybe not our desires, maybe not our agenda, maybe not our interests, maybe not our comforts, but you will give us all that is needful according to your wise purposes for us in the Messiah by whose name and in whose life we are called. Let this be our joy. Let this be our enduring faithfulness as long as we remain on this earth. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.